Sanders. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Okay, well, welcome everyone to the Dr. Hedberg Show. This is Dr. Hedberg, and I'm excited today to have a good friend and colleague on, Dr. Michael Ruscio. We've known each other for quite a long time, I think, since I launched the Infection Connection back in around around 2012, and uh, Dr. Ruscio has a lot of expertise in the gut and the thyroid and autoimmune disease, so we'll be talking about some of that today. So, Dr. Ruscio, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great. Well, uh, you and I have uh, a lot in common in that most of what we do is driven by the literature. Mm-hmm. And uh, so why don't we jump in and talk about some of the latest uh, work on non-celiac gluten sensitivity, because gluten is really one of those, it's a big topic right now. A lot of people are avoiding gluten, maybe maybe unnecessarily. Mm. Um, but why don't you talk a little bit about the latest research on, on non-celiac gluten sensitivity? Sure. And, and you're absolutely right. It's, um, it's an important issue because I'm sure that if, whether you're a clinician listening to this or, or a patient or just healthcare consumer, you've likely heard of gluten-free dieting. You probably know someone who's gone gluten-free and, and reported that they felt better eating gluten-free. So it's certainly something that can help people. I, I think where we have to be careful is when we try to tell everyone that they have to eat like they have celiac disease. And it's kind of um, this this mistake of falling into extreme ways of thinking or dichotomous ways of thinking where it's either all or none, 100% avoidance or or total um, you know unrestricted gluten in the diet. And for some people, that's absolutely true. For some people, they have to be very diligent with gluten avoidance. But and I guess one could ask the question: Well, if it's a potential problem, if if gluten in the diet is is a potential inflammatory or, or, or uh, uh, detrimental food, then why not just avoid it? Well, because that poses some psychological and, and psychosocial stressors on people. It, it can be difficult. And, and I certainly see patients who come in afraid of food and it's, it's causing an impairment of their social life because of it. Um, and, and so these are serious things that, that do have documented influences on your health, fear, stress, and social connectivity or, or lack thereof have been documented to have fairly profound impacts on various measures of health. So this is important to have a, a, a nuanced idea of what we should be recommending for gluten avoidance. And there was a multi-center study performed in Italy and a, a group of different physicians and gastroenterologists essentially comprised a 60-point assessment for identifying and tracking those who had non-celiac gluten sensitivity and also correlating what other symptoms and conditions non-celiac gluten sensitivity was associated with. And just for the audience, you have celiac and then if you're not diagnosable as celiac but you still seem to have a negative reaction to gluten, then you can be labeled non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And what they found was very interesting. 
they found that 0.3% of the population that was studied and rigorously evaluated trying to identify non-celiac gluten sensitivity, looking at symptoms, physical exam, lab testing, um, they, they found that 3% of the over 12,000 patients who were assessed, those of large sample size, were reported to have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Now, people may say, well, in Italy or in Europe, I've heard that there's less glycophosphate use and, and uh, there's less actual gluten in some of the grains after processing. Doesn't this differ in the United States? Well, in the same paper, they cite research showing that in the United States, the estimates of non-celiac gluten sensitivity have ranged from 0.6 um, to 0.6. So uh, I'm sorry, so from, from 0.6 to 6%. So even in the U.S., it's not something that seems to impact close to the majority, but definitely some people. And, and so this is important because I'm, I'm not saying that non-celiac gluten sensitivity is, is, um, is some sort of fad. Uh, it's clearly an issue and, and something that people should do some self-experimentation to see what their relationship with gluten should be. Some of the other researchers now are using the term gluten-reduced diet, and I think this may be a better aim for people who notice they have some reaction to gluten, but they're not decimated by gluten. Some people may notice they don't feel right for days after eating gluten. Other people may notice little to nothing in the way of symptoms. And, and so perhaps for those with mild symptoms, they can um, practice a gluten-reduced diet. And, and one just final point here to piggyback on this, some people make the argument that gluten fuels this silent inflammatory process in the body with no symptomatic reaction potentially for weeks or years. And what was very interesting about this study, they found that over 90% of people who are found to have non-celiac gluten sensitivity had a discernible symptomatic reaction within 24 hours. So that's actually very good news for us because it tells us that, again, the vast majority of people will have some type of symptomatic reaction after gluten reintroduction uh, within, within 24 hours. Now, that reaction might be brain fog, it might be fatigue, it might be skin breakouts, it might be bloating. The, the type of symptom can vary, but any, any negative symptom that you see uh, within 24 hours after gluten ingestion can tell you that you may have a problem with gluten. And if you don't experience that symptomatic reaction, the likelihood that you're doing damage to your body is, is fairly minimal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up about Europe. It's kind of an interesting thing that I've seen, not uh, actually not just in practice, but personally, a lot of patients will report that, you know, they go on vacation to Europe and they eat gluten and they actually feel great the whole time. And uh, I'm kind of the same way, but it's hard to differentiate the fact that you're just – uh, so much uh, more, you're so much better at, at digestion and um, just everything across the board is working better when you're on vacation. I mean, yeah, exactly. Rest. <laughs> um, you know, parasympathetic nervous system is just going to be running along just fine. Sure. So I just have to wonder, is it, is there a real difference in the gluten content or the type of wheat? And, uh, or is it just the fact that you're on vacation or is it, a combination of both. What do you think on that? I'm really glad you said that because I've, I've wondered that same question. And what I can say is this, is that there's a fair number of patients that come into my clinical practice. And when we have this discussion and they go and they reintroduce gluten, 
there's a fair number of people. I would say the majority of people notice that they can have some gluten and there's no sizable repercussion. Yes, there are. There is a, a small minority who have to be very careful. Absolutely, but I, I think that it absolutely could be a byproduct of being on vacation and being less stressed. And I also think there's a degree of placebo here. If people are expecting to have a negative reaction in the United States and not in Europe, we know that, for example, in randomized control trials where we're trying to isolate out the effect of the placebo uh, influence, uh, trials in IBS show on average a 45% placebo effect, even when we're trying to isolate out for it. So imagine if you're knowingly operating under some kind of external placebo effect, uh, we could we could infer that the influence of placebo might be as high as perhaps 80%. So yeah, I think all these things likely play a role, but, but definitely being less stressed, being on vacation, and, and then maybe having that positive um, that positive expectation of being able to eat gluten in Europe probably all congeal together to um, mm-hmm. allow people to eat more grains. Yeah. Right. Cause in the, in the psycho neuroimmunology research, it's, it's just so clear that our beliefs can change how our immune system responds and we can actually create an eosinophilic response to certain foods, even though we don't have an actual clinical allergy to it, just if we believe it strongly right. enough. Right. Uh, and, th- and that's why I think it's so important that as clinicians and nutritionists and, and healthcare providers, that we use cautious and discerning language be- because I-, I think up until now, the narrative on gluten has been way overzealous and, and too integrated with fear. And I-, I think it's actually, you know, we've gotten to the point where we've made people aware of gluten as an, as an issue, but I think we've overshot the landing now and we're, we're making people unnecessarily afraid of gluten. And I think we need to pull back a little bit and give people some, some more balanced recommendations here. Right. And I hate to say this about my own profession, but, you know, alternative medicine, functional medicine, it's really done a lot of harm to a lot of people by creating just unnecessary fear and anxiety about not just food, but but a lot of other things. And then you combine that with the internet and uh, people are just bombarded, not only from their practitioners, but from the internet with, like you said, unnecessary worries about things that they probably shouldn't be worrying about. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think that's totally dead on. I've made that same criticism of the field and and I, I think hopefully here, if I'm, if I'm looking at this in the most optimistic context that it, we're, we're a, in, in a sense, a younger field and, and we're learning and, and hopefully we're making some mistakes. This would be one of them. And, and the field will collectively learn, okay, um, we were really idealistic about avoiding gluten. And now we've realized that in that over, over idealistic goal, we may have created an equal amount of harm by this kind of psycho uh, neuroimmunology um, impact and and hopefully we'll we'll just embrace that and and correct and, and move on going forward because unfortunately there's a lot of optimism here and, and there's just one other point that just shot into my head from this particular study they found that about 30 percent of these non-celiac gluten sensitivity cases actually had another issue that underlied their reactivity including small intestinal bacterial overgrowth FODMAP sensitivity or just general inflammation in the um, in, in intestinal tract. So uh, if we factor that in, we could even say that, boy, even 30% perhaps of, of people who have a reaction to gluten may not be doomed to have to avoid gluten forever. But 
after cleaning up their gut, they may be able to go back to eating some gluten, which is nice. So they don't have to worry about avoidance, which is, which is challenging. So uh, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of hope here. Right, because there are definitely some patients who can eat gluten again, um, even if they have an autoimmune disease. Now, this I don't think that this is uh, a lot, but I've definitely had some patients who, you know, they're, they're feeling great, they're 100% symptom-free, their gut's working well, all their markers on their tests look great. And, uh, and then I'll say, you know, it's, it's give it a try, just see how you feel. And, uh, you know, sometimes they do fine with it. Sometimes having uh, some sourdough bread uh, once in a while is, is just fine. And their, their gut deals with it, their immune system metabolizes it, and they're okay. What is your approach when someone is, is doing really well and uh, they just want to see if they can have gluten in moderation at that point. Once we have someone improved, and so what I look for, you know, to be a little more detailed, is is someone reaching their their peak level of improvement. And and usually their their peak level of improvement means that most of their chief complaints have improved markedly, and they're generally happy with their current level of health. So once we've hit that that apex and someone's been stable there for one to two months, then we have them perform a reintroduction. And uh, we typically don't start with, with the gluten-containing grains, but oftentimes people are itching to get back on rice and quinoa and corn, um, maybe chocolate also, just as, a, as an example of a common food people want to bring back another diet. And once we've got some of those foods out of the way, then we simply have them perform a, a gluten reintroduction and you're, you're, I mean, I, I see the same exact thing that you see, where ironically, for some patients, they actually feel better when they start eating gluten because they they now feel less encumbered by the stress of trying to have to avoid gluten in everything. Um, you know, every time they go out to eat, they're stressed out about the sauce or how things were cooked in the kitchen. And and if we can take that stress off of them, uh, sometimes they not only notice they can have gluten, but they feel less stressed because they're no longer that concerned about the gluten. And they actually end up feeling um, like this huge weight has been lifted. And in the same study, they found that of this um, subset of of people in the study who had non-celiac gluten sensitivity, 9% had corresponding thyroid autoimmunity. So, uh, and that was the the highest correlated autoimmune condition. So it's definitely something there. um, But at least according to some of the best available literature, it's not a 100% of the population has to avoid it. And so I think like, like we're both alluding to, let's get people healthy and then have them reintroduce and, and find where their boundary has to be. Because I think all clinicians ultimately want patients on the broadest diet possible that's not doing harm at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have a lot of people that just don't feel comfortable socially anymore going out or eating or... Um, it's just difficult for them to go out with friends and have fun. And I think if we can get past that and a lot mm-hmm. of people, they can just start feeling a lot better. Cause as you alluded to earlier, you know, social isolation can have a lot of negative consequences on the body. Oh, absolutely. I, we, I was talking with Dr. Brian Walsh a few months ago on our podcast and he was covering some research that I was previously unaware of, but I found shocking, which essentially found that feeling isolated is as bad for your health as smoking. Mm-hmm. And so if, if your diet is contributing to your isolation, it's definitely not a good thing. Exactly. So 
One thing I wanted to to get your opinion on is something that I've been seeing a lot of recently, and it's patients who they've done a gluten-free diet or they've done an autoimmune paleo-style diet, and they get much, much sicker. Mm-hmm. Um, their, their digestive function gets worse. Sometimes they lose a lot of muscle mass. Um, just overall, they get so much worse going gluten-free or, or following one of those types of autoimmune diets. What are your thoughts on, on why you think that happens to some people? Yeah, and that's, that's such a great question because it's such a defeating experience when you're making these changes and attempts to get healthy and then you actually end up feeling worse. It's one of the most defeating situations for, for a patient or a practitioner who's guiding their patient through this to be in. And, and some of these observations are actually what really piqued my uh, curiosity and, and opened my mind in, in not being so rigid on being gluten-free, being grain-free, being paleo, what have you, because I, I noticed this very thing. And I think twofold mechanisms are kind of underlying this, if you will. One, for some people, they end up inadvertently going too low carb for their metabolism. Mm-hmm. And they're essentially going into this kind of pseudo starvation, pseudo hypochloric kind of um, uh, syndrome. And, and that's, you know, fatigue, weight loss. And then there are other patients who inadvertently end up going or they inadvertently end up eating high FODMAP, a high FODMAP content in their diet because they may have been eating some grains and some quinoa and some rice and some corn before. And now they're off all grains and all beans and they're really doing lots of vegetables and it just so happens that many popular vegetables are also high in FODMAPs and especially in patients with sensitive guts, the, this diet that's high in FODMAP foods and, and FODMAPs are essentially mm-hmm. mainly carbohydrates that are rich in prebiotics that feed bacteria and, and produce gases. Some people have too much bacteria and so that's a bad maneuver for them or they're very sensitive to gas pressure. And so that's a bad maneuver for them also. And, and so this is where modifying someone's diet a little bit to avoid some of those pitfalls can be super helpful. And ironically, for some of these people, they have to start eating grains. I would, I would start them with gluten-free grains um, and a little bit less vegetables so that they can have the right fit for their gut. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then we have to do a lot of work to usually just kind of build them back up. Cause like you said, a lot of times they become hypocaloric and if they're even mildly ketogenic, that suppresses their appetite and then they eat even less and that can compound the issue. So actually speaking of that, have you followed up on any of that, the latest research on uh, ketogenic diets and, and uh, the gut microflora regarding a reduction in diversity? Did you have any thoughts on those studies? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a couple of things here that are, uh, that are a little bit hairy to unpack, which, which is one, the way that we define diversity is still being mapped out. And, and, and it's, I think it's important for us all to understand that diversity isn't, isn't a simple measure. It's not like measuring someone's blood glucose, that it's a very standard protocol and the lab ranges are well-defined and, and essentially universally agreed upon. Um, you, you're looking at some very advanced software and computer programming that has to analyze a, a tremendous amount of data. And there's, there's different techniques that are used for the testing. So there's not agreement on the techniques that are used. 
there's not agreement on the lab values that are used in terms of this is considered high or low and this this level of change is considered a significant change so there's still a lot there that we don't know and that's still being sorted out so that, that that's kind of a, a fundamental point that should undergird th this conversation then the other thing here that can become problematic is many of these studies are looking at colonic diversity but they're not really assessing what's happening in the small intestine and there, there does seem to be a relationship there but our, our testing not only is is not yet standardized it, it seems to be very regional in in where it's looking but but if we zoom up and we look at this even in more of a practical way we do see people who go on a diet that may negatively impact diversity and i'll come back to the may in a second but at the same time they get much healthier mm -hmm. and um this has been shown not only in metabolic studies when patients go on progressively lower carbohydrate diets they show more favorable weight loss now again that's not something that we want to do for everyone not everyone needs to lose weight so you know this is a certain patient population that i think would would benefit the most um but Outside of patients who have high cholesterol, high blood sugar, high body fat, and go low carb and get a lot healthier, there is also a population of people with inflammatory or, or just general symptoms in the gut. And most namely, you could label this as irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, or inflammatory bowel disease, IBD. And both of these patient groups have benefited quite remarkably from low FODMAP diets which also may have a negative impact on diversity, yet we see at the same time a reduction in inflammation, a reduction in leaky gut, and a reduction in immune activation in the gut. So it's easy, I think, to take some of this out of context and say, oh, there may be something bad happening to the bacteria, yet the host is becoming much healthier. And so back to those two maze really quick, it, there, the, the data seems to be divided on whether or not lower carb or more specifically lower FODMAP diets have a consistent effect in decreasing diversity. There's not consistent data showing that. The data there is fairly split. Now, we do see a reduction in bifidobacterium populations from the low FODMAP diet, but that may not be a bad thing because the host ends up becoming healthier. Uh, and then the final point here, it's important to remember that Diversity is not a one-way street from diet to diversity. The health of the host has a measurable impact on diversity in the gut. And this is why we know, for example, people who exercise have healthier microbiotas. Sedentary people who then start exercising show a shift from unhealthy to healthier microbiotas. Um, and things like stress and changes in your circadian rhythm have also been shown to negatively impact one's microbiota. So, you know, the, the, the impact of diet on microbiota should always be taken into the greater context of what's happening to the host. If, if there's a net benefit to the host, then I would continue with that intervention as long as that intervention is reasonable um, it, because you can be misled in, in some of these um, finer points if you're only looking at the diversity score. Yeah, this, this term diversity, I think, is, is going to get clear in the next 10 to 20 years, but we just can't compare you know, Inuit to a uh, Scandinavian to an African to an Okinawan, uh, just vastly different uh, uh, diets and uh, very different microbiomes. I mean, that's something we know, know to be very, very clear at this point. 
so I think all those points you made are are dead on regarding uh, potential loss of diversity or what that even really means. So why don't right. we shift a little bit into, uh, we'll stay with the gut, but talk a little bit more about prebiotics and, and probiotics. So when I use a probiotic, I'm not really thinking like I'm going to be changing the patient's gut microflora that much. I'm more looking at its effects on how their food is digested, secretory IgA, uh, the gut barrier, and all those types of positive effects. And then with prebiotics, this is something that's, that's kind of going around right now. It's kind of the talk of everyone, you know, trying to work on the gut. But we know that that can make a lot of people just much, much worse. So where are you... Um, in your latest research on, on the use of prebiotics and probiotics? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And I, and I agree with everything you just said. And, and there's some important things we can kind of cultivate there, hopefully to prevent confusion or, or mishap on, on behalf of the, the listener or the reader. And I think one of the most striking examples of why feeding your gut bacteria in attempts to increase diversity and then therefore become healthier was, was misguided and erroneous is when we look at the data, look, looking at either high prebiotic diets or uh, high doses of, of prebiotic supplements, yes, there is some benefit shown, but there's also quite a bit of detriment shown. And we see, especially for people with pre-existing gut symptoms or gut conditions, high fiber and high prebiotic diets or supplementation more often than not tend to cause negative side effects. There's a smaller subset of patients who do benefit, but it's, it's a very, um, it's very difficult to explain that away, which is we take a bunch of people who have problems in the gut and we give half of those people a low FODMAP diet and there's like a 90% improvement rate. And we give the other 50% of those people a high prebiotic diet or a prebiotic supplement, and there's a very high incidence of adverse events. So if feeding the gut bacteria was so important, we wouldn't see that. We would see a high percentage of people respond positively to more prebiotics in the diet. So they do have their time and their place, and they can be helpful. In my mind, they're more of a end phase treatment, meaning it's one of the last things we consider once we've got the gut moving in the right direction. Or if someone comes in and they're in pretty robust health and they only need just a little bit of a tweak, then there's a higher probability that, that a healthier individual will benefit from either fiber or prebiotic supplementation. With one nuance, it, it does seem that constipation and constipation type IBS tend to have the, the best results with fiber. Um, so that's mm-hmm. something you maybe consider a little earlier on in, in your intervention hierarchy is, is fiber and or prebiotics and those in constipation. And prebiotics have shown some pretty impressive benefit in their ability to lower blood sugar, but using a dose of 10 to 20 grams per day, which that is going to cause uh, side effects in a notable number of people. And it was one of the chief problems that was noted in some of these studies was the adverse events that were mostly gastrointestinal in nature. Uh, so I think prebiotics had a lot of promise theoretically, but clinically didn't really pan out, I guess is the summary there. 
And with probiotics, also, I totally agree. I think it's foolish to do a stool test and say, you're low in lactobacillus acidophilus, therefore we are going to give you lactobacillus acidophilus. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you treat the tests and you don't treat the patients, that more often than not is going to lead to failure. And I've seen a number of those patients who came in from a doctor who is only trying to help, but they were treating the lab values and not treating the patients. And there's, there's no data I know of showing that a stool test is predictive in what probiotics someone will respond to. And that, that's very, very important to note. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, you know, if, if we're not trying to recolonize what's missing, so to speak, with, with probiotics, then we can use them for more of a pragmatic um, and, and symptom management, I guess you could say, perspective. We know, for example, that probiotics can fight SIBO, have antifungal and antiparasitic, antibacterial and antiprotozoal effects. So for people with dysbiosis, probiotics work great. They tend to lead to reduction of leaky gut, reduction of immune activation, um, and, and have a, a general positive but transient effect because most probiotics don't colonize you. And I think one thing that's important to understand with probiotics, there's probably hundreds of probiotic products out there, but we can organize almost any product into one of three categories. Category one would be a probiotic that has a blend of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains. So when you look on the label, you'll see predominantly a lactobacillus or a bifidobacterium type species listed on the ingredient list. Category two would be a Saccharomyces boulardii, and this is actually technically a healthy fungus. Um, and then category three are soil-based or spore-forming probiotics, and these typically have the designation of bacillus. So it may be bacillus coagulans or bacillus subtilis or bacillus lichenformis. Um, there's a, a couple strains that fall outside of that category system, but most probiotics will fall into that category system. And why this can be helpful is because if someone is floundering and saying, oh, sometimes I feel like probiotics flare me, but other times I feel like they don't. And I keep hearing how good they are, but I'm not sure. I seem to have this dicey relationship. What may be happening for that person is every time they have a category three probiotic, they respond well, but they're not taking the time to look on the label. And they just, they just keep going from product name to product name, right? Uh, Bifidobacterium five, gut healer four, um, you know, probio, uh, seven and they're they're just going from product to product but they're not understanding where in the category system their probiotics fall and once they connect that dot they go okay category threes work really well for me but i seem to react negatively to category ones so i'm not going to get caught up in these different sexy sounding names of probiotics but i'm rather going to look at the ingredient label, identify what category it falls in, and then use only the category that I've noticed works for my gut. Mm -hmm. Right, right, exactly. So those are all excellent points about, about prebiotics and, and probiotics. I don't really have too much to add there. So why don't we close with um, just the question on SIBO. So is there anything that's come out in the literature in 2018 that you've read that has actually changed the way you, you would treat a patient with SIBO? Anything new for you? Yeah, yeah there's, there's a few things that I think have, have helped guide decision-making. There's been one meta-analysis, and it was either published late 2017 or two, early 2018, 
Um, and a meta-analysis is essentially a summary of the available clinical trials that found that probiotics are effective at decontaminating or cleaning out small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in, in the intestines. Uh, so I think that was a powerful um, data point reinforcing that we don't have to necessarily use antibiotics or even herbal antimicrobials to eradicate SIBO. Uh, you know, a well-formulated and well-used probiotic may be enough to aid in that. And, and that, that runs counter to some of what the SIBO um, gurus and researchers have, uh, have commented on. And I, I think there's a little bit of a, of a, of a off the mark opinion in some of the SIBO circles. Some of the opinion there seems to be more guru driven than it is evidence driven. So you have some arguably, um, or you, you have some unquestionably brilliant researchers, but there may be a bit of a bias toward pharmaceuticals. And so they're not really commenting much on the fact that probiotics are showing some strong ability to fight SIBO. And so I think it's important that you keep that in mind. Um, and then there's also been a position paper issued by the Rome Foundation, and the Rome Foundation is arguably the leading body in gastroenterology in the world, and they took a more conservative stance on SIBO breath testing than some people may be accustomed to. And I recently wrote a review article that, that kind of compared and, and contrasted uh, the, the two different philosophies on SIBO breath testing, the, the North American consensus paper recommended more liberal use of, of breath testing and the Rome consensus recommended a little bit more of a conservative use of breath testing. Uh, and, and I actually lean a little bit more in the conservative direction because I, I found that retesting someone for SIBO every time you're going to treat them doesn't really change the treatment much. And all it does is waste some time and money hmm. and um, time and money are valuable, right? Tips to, to people. <laughs> and I try not yeah. to squander those. Um, so I, I, um, now I kind of advocate a, you can, you don't have to, but you can test at baseline to get an idea of what's going on in the gut and then treat empirically, meaning use, use the patient's response to guide you from there and then potentially consider confirmatory testing at a later date. Or if you're, if you're confused in terms of why there's been a lack of response after several rounds of treatments, you can do some confirmatory retesting to help guide you from there. Um, but that, you know, uh, those two things, I think, um, you know, are two of the, the more uh, impactful things that, that kind of come to mind. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I'm definitely on the conservative side and I rarely, rarely retest uh, a SIBO breath test. I mean, if, if someone's digestion is, is working really well and uh, they're feeling much better, I'm not going to put them through, through another test, you know, just to see if it's gone. I just don't really see the value in that. So I'm glad you said that. Um, well, I know you've written a great book. So why don't you tell us about your your book on, on the gut and also just where you'd like people to find you online? Sure. Well, thank you. Um, the, the book is entitled Healthy Gut, Healthy You, and it's available on, on Amazon. <clears throat> you can also get it digitally as a Kindle and Nook um, and th this book was really a labor of love. I took three years writing this book, and there's just under a thousand medical references supporting the approach in the book. And I wanted to write the complete guide that someone would need to fix their gut health. And I, I really tried to make myself obsolete by writing this book and give someone a, a breakdown from, from, you know, if they saw me in the clinic from day one all the way through to the end of their care with me 
what do we do first? How do we determine the right diet? Uh, if diet alone does not work, what do we do next? And after some of those initial level interventions like probiotics and enzymes, if someone's not completely responded, what might we do next? And, and so the protocol has a self-assessment at the end of every step, and it really helps walk people through creating their own treatment plan in a step-by-step fashion that will allow someone with mild symptoms like mild constipation all the way through someone with recalcitrant SIBO or, or IBS be able to walk away from the book with a positive experience. Um, so um, I'm very happy about that book and um, I'm, I'm glad to have it out there. Again, that's available on Amazon. The, the name is Healthy Gut, Healthy You. If people wanted to learn more about the book, they could go to healthygutthealthyyoubook.com or my website, which is drrusho.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. Great. Well, it's, it's an excellent book. Uh, I've read it, so I highly recommend everyone read it if they want to learn how to heal their gut and have a really deep understanding of, of gut health and uh, why their gut may be out of balance and all the things that, that you can do to really fix it. So I will have everything we talked about on drhedberg.com. So to all of our listeners, go to drhedberg.com and I will link to everything that we talked about today as well as some of the, the research that we talked about and that'll all be up uh, quite soon. So Dr. Ruscio, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, take care, everyone. This is Dr. Hedberg, and I will talk to you next time. Take care. If you enjoy the Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.